So Paul's words in these imperative chapters, the chapters that have the commands in them, so to speak, of Ephesians, imply rather explicitly some rhetorical questions about how the gospel of Jesus Christ and what he has accomplished for us in it shapes our behavior or or is supposed to be shaping our behavior so that we as a church look more and more to one another and to our neighbors, which includes our enemies, like the one who saved us. Do we give Christ with our words to one another and grace to those who listen to us, even in the church? What does this new identity in Christ mean for the content and spirit of our words, the things we say and how we say them, even in everyday conversations in the church of Jesus Christ. Because if you'll notice here, we've been in Ephesians for a while now, Paul goes right from the spiritual certainty of our unity to who Jesus is for us in the gospel and what he has given us in the ministry of the word to grow up into him, to the how and what now of our words. Because nothing does more damage to the unity that He has given and its implications for us than when we refuse to speak the truth that is in Jesus in love to one another and instead speak for ourselves and what we want. The priority of the flesh has ended for the people that belong to God, for He has made us new. Christ has given us all a new identity so that we would no longer live for ourselves and our flesh, but in Him by the Spirit, that we would all indeed be built together into one as His body. His body. The body of Christ. Let me pick up the passage where we left off in verse 17 of chapter 4 in Ephesians. Now this I say and testify in the Lord that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of heart. They have become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. Paul had previously used the word walk to describe the way in which we live our lives back in chapter 2, verses 1 and 3. He told us that before God made us alive and saved us by grace through the gift of faith, before that, you and I were dead in the trespasses and sins in which we once walked. We were slaves to Satan, slaves to the passions of our flesh. We did whatever we wanted to do. Whatever we thought was right for us, we did it. We carried out the desires. That's the difference between the old self and the new self here. The old self carried out the desires of our bodies and our minds and never questioned them. Because of our natures, he said there, we were nothing but children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But then the God who is rich in mercy loved us so much that even when we were like that, enslaved like that, indulgent like that. He reached down in pure grace and awakened us for spiritual death to save us and to make us 
new. But He didn't just, we're learning in Ephesians, accomplish our individual forgiveness and righteousness and justification. He also brought us into a redeemed family. A whole new community called the church. And now together, we're being told, we are being built up on the foundation of His Word, where Christ is the cornerstone. He has called us into one body and one spirit, to one hope, one Lord, one faith, and one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all, as we learned at the beginning of chapter 4. And Jesus then, as our Lord, gave us the gift of the ministry of His Word to grow us up into this new identity so that we are His ongoing image or presence in the world. If you will, His Word equips then, it matures us, in this new body where Christ makes us grow up together in love. Now, that is a very lofty, beautiful description of what it is to be a part of the church. Is that what it feels like you are in our church? Is that what it feels like to be a part of our church? Does it seem like that's what our church is all about, right? This beautiful thing he's talking about here in chapter 4, the gospel that we've heard in 1 through 4 is the rationale for the commands Paul starts to give here. Paul says, first of all, that we must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. Since we know now, in light of 2.11 to 3.6, that the old distinctions from the age before Jesus died and rose again and ascended victoriously to the Father have been torn down. We need to read the word Gentile when we see it as a catch-all for unbelievers, period. For all those outside of Christ, regardless of nationality. Remember, those distinctions can't be made anymore for people that are in the church. So, unbelievers are not simply still separated from the commonwealth of Israel. They are alienated from the life of God. That is the life He provides for us in Christ. So, this isn't merely something that's true only if they feel it. Right? This isn't a feeling unbelievers have about themselves. It's a spiritually lifeless state that they're in, whether they know it or not. Paul reminds these believers in Ephesus that they used to be like that. That's his point of bringing that up here. He's not bringing it up to say something mean about the world. He's, he's talking to them. You used to be this. right? You used to be like this. Grace came in, however, and changed our identity. And Paul tells us, tells them, that as new creations in Christ, we are no longer the victims of futility. Right? We're no longer living futile lives. Our lives, our minds have been renewed. We no longer live like we need anything from anyone. Because all we need has been granted to us in Jesus Christ. Living like all our hopes depend on the actions of others and the way of the world curves us in on ourselves, which is the antithesis or creates the antithesis in the church of unity and oneness. Paul will even make the point here that this futility is the very foundation of the talk and the words that corrupt the church. It's because you have people still thinking like they used to think before they were saved. Unbelievers, he says, are darkened in their understanding of, thing, uh, of things. There's something that blinds those who are not in Christ to reality and to truth. It doesn't mean they're stupid. 
It doesn't mean unbelievers are stupid. It doesn't at all mean they're worthless or something. It means they're dead to truth because of their sinfulness, because of the condition and desires of their hearts. Sinfulness, when, when I say that here, is not just referring to the bad things we do, but really to the very way we think and see reality. Unbelievers, those that are not in Christ by grace, they don't have His light. They don't have the light of Christ, which means they literally can't understand life. They can't properly assess what is real and what is true. And while they are slaves to sin, they're willing slaves to sin. And so without them being able to understand why, life just gets more frustrating and more futile. They've sold themselves, in a sense, to themselves to be their own masters of their fates and their own captains of their souls. In other words, they'd rather be what they think is freedom or free than have their personal desires swallowed up into Jesus, into one new man of whom he is the head. So rather than being swallowed up into one new man, the head of which is Christ, the world would rather be looking on its own for their identity and understanding and for their truth and follow their own hearts and believe in themselves. The problem is that their hearts are darkened. They're alienated from God. Beloved, it sets us free to become slaves of Jesus Christ. Only then, only then are we going to be free from the futility of this world. They are darkened in their understanding and alienated from God because of the ignorance that is in them. Those are harsh words from Paul, but this is the truth due to their hardness of heart. Hardness of heart makes us dumb. It makes us ignorant to have a hardened heart. And the point of saying that to believers is to remind believers, you used to have hardened hearts. Don't have hardened hearts anymore. Don't let your heart get hard. Don't. It makes us dumb. It makes us blind. And, and it, 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 it's like we aren't in Christ. We are, but to our understanding, we aren't processing truth accurately. Hearts that are hardened against God make people ignorant of the truth that sets us free. Which is why they remain darkened in their understanding and alienated from the life of God. Paul is saying, why would anyone in Christ want to be alienated from the life God has given to you? From me, he's saying. They're kicking against the goads, unbelievers are. To them, God seems tortuous, torturous, sorry, as the psalmist says. God is hidden from them. He's in the dark. It seems as if God only exists, if He's there, to punish them and suppress their desires and ruin their lives and ruin their joy. And He hates them and He's trying to ruin them. That's all God seems to them. They hate Him. So in verse 19, they've become callous. Yes, over time, they've become callous to the truth and have given themselves up to sensuality. I, I'm, I just will do what I want to do. That's the only way I'm ever going to be happy. It's the only way I'm ever going to have meaning and fulfillment is if I get to do and say what I want. When that attitude is in the church, it's a tumor. It's alien to what this is. 
It's interesting that back in Romans 1, it's just uh, they become callous over time and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. Now, why have they made that choice? This is amazing. In Romans 1, which I encourage you to read that chapter, when Paul lays out why mankind is condemned under sin, he says that this is God's wrath against them even now. That God has given them up to the self-centeredness they crave and want to live by. He has given them up to their desires. In other words, God's wrath on the unbeliever feels like free will. We've been handed over to ourselves and to our own desires to pursue what we want and what we will by God as an expression of His wrath against us outside of Christ. So notice, as we look at those verses, what life outside of Christ does to a person. Alright? An unbeliever. It makes their existence feel futile and meaningless, which drives them deeper into darkness and alienation. It increases one's ignorance regarding the truth, hardens their hearts to God who loves them and came to save them in Christ. And since they have no basis for building their identity on anything but themselves and their own desires, no matter how depraved or how costly pursuing them might be, they have become callous to God and to the truth, driven by their sensual desires, which are corrupted by the flesh, and therefore are increasingly impure. You just go further and further into the dark the more you go into yourself. Right? The, the world says exactly the opposite. You have to find yourself. You know who you are. You know where you are. Unless something is wrong. And I don't say that you know, to be funny. We, we, we know where ourselves are. Right? We know. If life doesn't come into us from God, in Christ, by His Spirit, that is, if we are not baptized out of death and into Christ, we have no identity. And we don't know how to live, and we don't know how to properly, responsibly, truthfully find an identity or find any meaning in reality. Having no identity from God for us in Christ, according to the Scripture makes us rotten and impure and miserable and stubborn and blind and self-centered. We are broken and bent outside of Him. So, we unbelievers, we being still struggling Christians and unbelievers, try to get life and satisfaction and meaning and identity from a world that doesn't possess those things because it's been cursed with futility by God to make the search for identity and meaning and truth and happiness seem even more worthless. That's God's wrath in us in the hope of saving us. So all people and things and jobs and spouses and kids and churches are then, if we're like 17 through 19, all they are is one more thing that isn't Jesus that we're trying to build our lives on and it leaves us empty and it makes us worse and more bitter and more hateful and more stubborn over time. Why do people that claim the name of Christ and claim they've been saved by grace through faith 
get so bitter as they get longer and longer in life. Why? What is happening? Because it's not normal. It shouldn't be. That's what it's like when you're alienated from the life of God that you increase in bitterness and feeling futile and worthless and all these things. That happens to those who don't have Christ. Look at verses 20 through 24 next. He says, but that is not the way you learn Christ. Assuming that you have heard about him and were taught in him as the truth is in Jesus to put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds and to put on the new self created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. Why is he telling them this? Right? Have you ever thought about these words? You didn't learn Christ that way. Well, Paul, of course we didn't. Jesus isn't like that. What, what, what do you mean? First of all, notice that Paul says this about Christ himself. Paul is not saying that is not the way you learned a message about Jesus. He says you didn't learn Jesus, Christ, like that. Christ himself, a person, is the object of the ministry of his word, of the truth. It's a person. God remains hidden to us if we use the Bible as merely a textbook, just trying to find out, okay, what I want is to live a, you know, a, a happy, fulfilling life. I want to have an identity. And, and we can talk later about how those aren't bad desires as long as Christ is the answer to all that, right? But what we do if we approach the Bible that way is that we're approaching, we're looking for information. We're not looking for a person. And apparently it's counterproductive to what God means to accomplish in us. The, the righteousness you need to stand approved and accepted before God has been granted to you at the cross, in the resurrection, in Christ, and He is interceding for you right now. If you are in Christ, you are sealed, you are going to heaven. You will have eternal life. Stop trying to earn your way. It will make you feel futile and meaningless, and you'll actually get worse over time, not better. Right? It, when the more curved in on ourselves we get, the more bitter even the church becomes. It's a tragedy because all we're not doing is looking at Christ, at this person. He's, he's on the outside. We're, we're, what does he give to me to pursue these things I want, whether I have them or not? But it's Jesus and he has a lot of power, so maybe he's for me and maybe I should get my way. And No. God remains hidden to us if we use the Bible as a textbook, just trying to find out the instructions on how to live. That's the law. That's not the gospel. That's how we tried to find meaning when we didn't have Jesus. Just give me the right information. What's the cheat code to life, right? How do I do this? How do I crack the code of the earth and unlock the world for me? The, the world doesn't have the key to unlock itself. And neither do we. Paul says we've not learned Christ in such a way as to still be struggling with futility and callousness. Because in salvation, God has given us himself. We're complete in him. We have all of it in this person. 
not first and foremost in this person's instructions. And I'm not separating Christ from his truth. I'm saying that Christ is the truth. Paul says here that we're not people who sit under a word primarily about someone, but under the word who is someone. So we, we don't come into church and sit under the word primarily to learn. We sit under the word primarily to be blown over by the glory and the beauty of Christ. So formation into the life that glorifies God relies completely on knowing the person of Jesus. People always say, I can quote this from the Bible. I know this from the Bible. I don't, I don't care. You know who's better at knowing the Bible and quoting it than we are? Satan. So that, that doesn't mean anything. Tell me about Jesus. Who is he to you? If we just focus on behavior and transformation as though that is what being a Christian is all about. That's not what it's all about. God took care of that on the cross. We'll miss this person that has literally reconciled you and I to God. Jesus reconciled us sinners to God. It's done. It's all past tense verbs. In present action, Paul is not implying in verse 21 when he says, assuming that you've heard, he's not implying that he's unsure whether he had preached things correctly in Ephesus. He's using that language precisely because he assumes it is true. He did not teach them that their new identity in Christ was so that now you have the power of Jesus at your disposal to serve those desires. Right? Now life is just going to make sense all the time. Now life is just going to always feel meaningful and, and, and you're just going to feel like you're, you're worth so much and so important. No, you're going to be in real time a fool for Christ and the refuse of the world. And, and, and what you're, you're going to do is think of others as more important than yourselves, especially in your personal desires and preferences, because that's where they come out. So if you don't have your identity and your meaning rooted in this person, but just trying to use this person to get what you want, you didn't learn Christ like that's what he is. Right? That's not how Jesus was presented to you or should have been presented to you. He's a savior, not a life coach. Right? That's, that's a very important distinction to make. If God was obsessed with the process of change, there'd be a lot more details and instructions on things that are impossible, like parenting well. You, as, as a dad, you, you feel like you mess up every day. And I imagine as a mom, you feel the same. Like, how do I do this? How, how do we deal with this now? Right? Well, let me look for the, the it's, it's an encyclopedia, so let me go to the P's for parenting. And find, no, it, 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 that's not the way life works. What, what he's telling you is, look, you're in me. I've swallowed you up. You have an identity. You have meaning. I give it to you. I love you. I've saved you. I've reconciled you. Rest in me. And you will be okay. Jesus Christ and his church do not exist to advance and exalt you and I but to exist or to advance and exalt Christ. So there is something happening in Ephesus that's not good. And it seems like the church is too individualistic and divided 
because he has to instruct them in these matters rather than just encourage them in them. The church is too individualistic. It's still too much like the world, not in the clothes they wear or the way they talk, per se, right? But in why they are living like they are and saying what they say. The person of Christ then, Paul knows, isn't clearly being proclaimed. He he diagnoses it from prison. Oh, there's individualistic issues there? You guys haven't learned Christ correctly. Why don't you send us a manual on on not being individualistic? No, no, no. You, you need to hear the gospel. Right? It's like that's always Paul's answer. All you talk about is the gospel. Well, yeah, Paul says, yeah. The, the man's in prison. This is the priority. Right? Paul says, I didn't teach you that, Jesus. That's not what you learned when you heard Jesus from me, that you should remain individualistic and feel this right inside of you to defend yourself and advance yourself and exalt yourself. And if you, if you just see it as a collection of individuals, it, it's, it's going to remain divided like the world is. It's just a church, instead of being a microcosm of heaven, will be a microcosm of the world because the people in it that have been redeemed have forgotten and aren't learning Christ. He tells us that it's unbelievers that treat others the way they do because they're enslaved to their desires and ignorant of the truth and have hearts that are hardened against God and His Word. The church, Paul is saying, those who are in Christ, they're no longer desperate. You and I are no longer desperate. We don't live like we're still searching for an identity, like we're still trying to find ourselves we don't clamor right we don't clamor for meaning we don't try to find worth and if we don't get our way in things we don't live futile lives we don't need to be worried about not getting our way we don't need to be worried that what we want won't happen right that kills a church And it's so deadly because the people doing that don't believe that's what they're doing. Because that's what living in the flesh does. It blinds us and makes us ignorant. We will justify ourselves when Christ has justified us apart from ourselves by His death, by His resurrection, and by grace through faith in it. In Him. Our identity is in Christ, beloved. We get our worth and our meaning and our names, literally, from Him. Everything we need, everything we need for life and salvation, for meaning and fulfillment, for satisfaction and hope, has been given to us in Christ. That's chapter 1, verse 3. He started out there. Paul locates the things. In other words, this this is... Paul locates the things that bring strife and anger and lying and scheming and gossip and a lack of compassion and slander and malice and bitterness and division. He locates the reason for all of them in the church in the lack of knowledge about Christ. We live as hopeless as the world 
when we don't have enough Jesus. And in this gospel we proclaim, Christ is being revealed. So what's the problem? It's either in the content of the message or in the heart of the listener. Why is church so hard? Why is true unity so difficult to see and believe is there, let alone maintain as as, as we've been commanded to earlier in chapter 4? Why are believers, those who have been given life in Christ, why can they be so selfish and so self-centered and so cold and cruel and condescending and merciless and mean and bitter and stubborn and demanding? Why? How does that happen? Have we forgotten the Savior? Is that what has happened? Could we for two seconds consider that it, it might be us, right? Why are we willing to split churches over our own desires? Listen, all of us have a place inside of us right now where we want something so bad that if it means somebody leaving, well, right? We aren't lost. We aren't living futile lives. We don't need to get our way in order to be okay. We, we don't need that. And, not, and, and believing that we must is disbelieving Christ for us in the gospel. Jesus talks like he grants us everything we need. The Bible states it flatly in the book of Philippians, that all our needs will be provided. So if there's anything I want that I'm not getting, what I need to do is not question God's goodness, but question my own heart and say, do I believe him or not? What, why do I think I need this thing? And I guarantee you, you will find the answer in the ways in which you aren't seeing Christ or in which I'm not seeing Christ as this happens in my own life, right? We aren't hopeless. We, we aren't slaves to our flesh. Is what I lose by not getting my way more important to me than the fact that I'm safe in Jesus, though, whether I get it or not? You can't take that from me, right? It's not ignorance about techniques. That's not why we're there if that's where we are. It's not ignorance about strategies for unity. That, though That's... A lack of that information is not what keeps us divided. This is sufficient for two warring tribes in the Sudan to have unity when Christ comes in. This is all they need to do that. This is literally all they need. It's the willful ignorance of who Jesus is for us in the gospel. That, that's where all the problems have their root. It's being so into our own desires that we won't even go there with Jesus because we know, we know deep down inside the truth that is in Jesus. We know it's wrong to live for and serve ourselves and what we want. We know it's wrong. So when you preach Jesus to me, I'm going to get mad. And I'm going to critique that you don't give me enough of what I need. Beloved, all I have for you is Jesus. That's all I have for you. And anywhere you decide to go to church, 
That's what you need from the preacher, Jesus. That's what we all need. I need a preacher, right? Everyone in the church knows that when Jesus walks into a place and sets the agenda, all of theirs are going to die. So here's what's happening. When we push for our own way, especially at the expense of true unity, all we're doing is pushing out Christ. You cannot serve two masters. But Jesus isn't hiding from us. He isn't teasing us or keeping anything from us. He's granted us everything pertaining to life and godliness in His Son. We just too often live like our minds still lack what we need. As though we don't know where peace can be found. We're kicking against the goats. We pursue what we want knowingly to the peril of our own peace and contentment in Christ. We know where peace is found. We, we aren't unaware of this. Paul says that the church in Ephesus apparently had heard about Jesus from his ministry to them. They were taught that the truth is in Jesus. And beloved, in verse 21, that's always where the truth is located. The truth is always in Jesus. All truth is his truth. So what do we do? Where do we go? How do we fix things? How do we maintain the unity that God gave us? How can we be the church? We, we look to Christ. We become like what we behold. And if we become like ourselves, we are not becoming like Christ. And Paul gives very clear instructions Believe it or not. In 2 Corinthians 3 when he says, And we all with unveiled face, our faces have had the covering taken away of the law. We all with unveiled face, beholding the glory of God, because that's who Christ is for us in the gospel, the radiance of God's glory. Beholding the glory of God are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. Do you know what we need when we lack? We need to behold the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. And where is that found? In the gospel. In the gospel. I need to hear again and again that my sins are forgiven. That I'm righteous in Christ. That he accepts me in the beloved by virtue and for the sake of his perfect sinless saving son. That's where Jesus has located himself for me. He is in this word for me. He doesn't hide from us. We just have to remove ourselves from the equation. Beloved, the nonsense of the flesh kills churches and it kills Christians. Kills them. Jesus is here for you. What are you here for? We all have our preferences, absolutely. But we have also been swallowed up by Jesus. Because we won't find life serving ourselves. Our church isn't family owned and operated. That is not what a church is. If that's what it wants to be, it needs to quit using the Lord's name in vain and calling itself a church. Call it a business and put it on the sign. This church, family owned and operated. We do what we want. We do what we like. And if you like it, you are welcome here. And if you don't, you aren't. Just tell the truth. We have been bought with a price. We are owned by Christ. 
He has all the say here, all the leverage here. The one who loved us and gave himself up for us. You see how he serves us in being our head? Beloved, what is the first thing being in Christ means for our new identities here in verse 22? Putting off the old self. Get rid of 17 through 19. Putting off the old self that lived. It it was the old self because that self lived for itself. That's what made it the old self. Take it off, he says. It doesn't live here. When believers are acting like verses 17 through 19, and where we see these verses in context in Ephesians, the unity and oneness Christ is calling us to, it can't exist. It won't exist. The old self, again, is the old self in verse 22, because it belongs to our former manner of life that is corrupt through what? Why is the old self corrupt? Deceitful desires. Everything that corrupts comes from inside. Jesus told us this. We just don't believe him. It is not what goes into a man that defiles him. That's God's holy, infallible, inerrant, authoritative, sufficient, eternal word. It is not. That's Jesus speaking. It is not what goes into a man that defiles him, but what comes out of a man. From his heart, that is what defiles him. And what is, what is a church usually consumed with? What comes into us from the outside and keeping the bad things away, which is just punting on where the real issue with deformity and corruption lies. Beloved, it's in me and it's in you. We are the greatest dangers to the unity Christ has bought and paid for for us. Deceitful desires corrupt everything. If we would just listen to Jesus. If I know that all the corruption comes from in me, then do you know what I would come here for? To hear Jesus for me. Our old natures, our fleshly natures, they aren't corrupt from the outside in because of the sinful things we do. What corrupts us, and therefore what corrupts the church, are the deceitful desires of our own flesh. Don't forget, Paul is writing all of these things from 17 onward to believers. That's who he's giving this information to. Paul is saying in context that what gets in the way of the church being the church Christ has made us and called us to be is actually not the homosexual agenda or the federal government or the liberal media or illegal immigrants. Those aren't the things that are corrupting the church. They're sinful. God has called them sin. We speak the truth, but they aren't corrupting the church. The outside can't corrupt. That's not the way it works. We're just... just Pushing all the problems and sinfulness and selfishness in the world out onto the unbelieving. No, no, no. It's, I mean, it's there, sure. It's in their hearts. But Paul says apparently it's still in ours. We need to recognize that if we want to be the church, right? If, if we want to be something else, then we can kind of, you know, make light of these things and play fast and loose with the text. Just, you know, so that it isn't talking about us. It's talking about them. Their desires are bad. Mine aren't. I only want the best. I only want what's good. I only want what's right. You know, and then we just the manipulative games we play to 
advance our own desires. What gets in the way of the church being the church, according to the Bible, is the lack of the knowledge of Christ and our own deceitful desires that result from that. Because instead of being filled by Him in every way and growing up into Him in every way who is the head, we are filling ourselves with ourselves and getting dumber and blinder and meaner and more impure. And we're Christians, Paul is saying. We must stop lamenting the fact, beloved, that the fallen, evil, futile, blind, enslaved, hard-hearted world has the audacity to act like it. What needs to shock us and move us to repentance and make us clutch our pearls actually is that anyone in the church of Christ can act like this with a straight face. The truth is in Jesus. That means it's not in me. It is always in Jesus. What should we do? How should we act? The answer is in the person of Jesus. Who was Jesus? Be that. And I I hope you feel the lunacy of that statement. The law is heavy. there's, There's no shrinking back from these commands. He means exactly what he's saying and expects exactly what he's saying. This is law. This is the law of Christ. This is the way it should be and must be if we're his children. So what are we going to do? Feel the weight of the perfection and holiness and purity of God's holy, righteous, and good law. Feel it. Let it have its way with you. None of us is here yet. No, to to know Christ means to be renewed in the spirit of our minds. In verse 23, we don't think like we used to anymore. I I love it when people talk about how they don't do the things they used to do. That's great. They're unchristian, or they're unchristians, they're non-Christians that can say the same thing. So, how do you think now? That's what I would like to know. What motivates what you do? Where do your desires come from? Why do you say the things you say in the way that you say them? Right? Where is, where is Christ in you? We don't think like what our flesh wants can save us anymore. So we mortify it and we kill it by the gospel. We don't feed it and help it grow. We aren't slaves to it anymore. We, we don't need to act like we are. We don't have to. We're in Christ. We don't have to give in to our flesh. We really don't. You say, but it's so easy and I do it so much. So do I. And beloved, if grace doesn't cover the person that can't keep, quit messing up, it, it's no good. So don't, don't be condemned by grace. Because of Jesus, we never need to think like we did before we knew Him ever again. We, we know the truth now because we know Jesus. Which means who He is in His person and what He's revealed to me is all that I need to know the truth. So being able to answer every question and know what to do in every situation and how to respond in every situation, that's not where the truth is. The truth is in Jesus. And if I know that, I do know the truth. 
So I need Him. I need more Him. Because my flesh is waging war against my soul right now. Let us stop indulging our fleshly desires, beloved. As though what comes from our flesh is pure. No, let us start questioning whether or not our desires reflect the truth. Because the truth isn't found in us, it's found in Jesus. And if you want to connect what you want to Jesus, it better be a straight, bold, clear line. Because of course anybody could say, I want this because Jesus wants it, or that, that's what we do. I, 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 all the time, you know, God told me that I'm supposed to marry you. That's cool, he, he didn't tell me that. Right? Anybody can say, well, this, I just feel like this is God's will. What do we always say? I have a great peace about it. I wish the Bible said that that's how you would know you were right because you felt peace about what you wanted. It's very strange to live like that. In verse 24, we're commanded to put on the new self. Why? Because then what will happen if we're righteous in Christ and he doesn't need our righteousness to accept me? Why does he need me or call me to be new? To put on the new self. For what? I'm saved. Because then our brothers and sisters in the church and our neighbors will see Christ in us. That's why. The old self, the old desires will not show them Christ. The new self, the new desires will. We cannot, as the church, know nothing but Christ and Him crucified. 1 Corinthians 2, 2. If we're using the word I all the time. What's so great about the new self? Well, it's created, which means the new self is something that happens to us. We're created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. That is the image of Christ. Because what that image new self portrays is the truth. Where is Christ in the desires of our flesh? How is he present there? Learning Christ in the ministry of the Word is what makes us the opposite of verses 17 through 19. We're transformed by grace and truth and power that are outside of us and come into us when we hear the Word. Faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the Word of Christ. So what does the new self that is created after the likeness of God, what does this look like? Look look at verse 25. Therefore... Having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members one of another. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. Do we realize that's what we're doing when we pursue what we want, regardless of the cost, no matter how mad we are? All we're doing is opening the door of the church and, and inviting Satan in to take a seat. We're just opening that. That's, we open the church up to the attack of Satan. We open ourselves and our homes and our lives up to the attack of Satan. When we say, no, I want what I want. I will push for what I want. I'm right. You're wrong. I'm going to require of the church what God doesn't require of it. Why don't you just wear a shirt that says, Satan, you're welcome here. You're welcome in me. You're welcome in the church. Do whatever you want as long as I get what I want. Let the Bible tell you who you are. Let's let's let it work.
the opportunity to the devil. We give that to him. The devil made me do it because I asked him to. Give no opportunity to the devil. None. Let the thief no longer steal. Rather, let him labor doing honest work with his own hands so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. Let that verse comfort you when you think that your work is not sacred and only I do sacred work or people that work in the church do sacred work. Beloved, when you work, your vocation, whatever you do, whether it's a a mom who stays at home and works there or or any other job that, that you leave the house to do, by serving your family, by doing what you need to do so that you don't have to steal, you are serving the church, you are serving your neighbor, and you are glorifying God. Be at peace with your vocation. It is God's gift to you for His people and for the world. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouth. But only such as is good for building up as fits the occasion. So the what of our speech and the timing of it, we need God for. That it may give grace to those who hear. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God. This is in a, from here to like the end of verse 32, I'm going to wrap it up here. I didn't realize it was that far past 12. Okay, this is an ascendaton. It's a grammatical tool so that you know what follows here. Like, like it's not starting a new thought. It's continuing the same thought. And in the Greek, there are no conjunctions here. It's just bam, 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 right? The point is, Grieving the Holy Spirit here is related directly in this text to the words that come out of our mouths in the church and to the church, right? It's not that the other sins don't grieve the Holy Spirit. And grieving the Holy Spirit doesn't mean he has sensitive ears. And if you say a cuss, it'll bother him, you know, or hurt his... No, if you are rotten in your speech, you are grieving the Holy Spirit of God. You are treating people in whom the Holy Spirit resides like He doesn't reside there, and you can talk to them and treat them however you want. See, that's evil. That's flesh. That's devil. That's why Paul made only that which is good for building up. So when I'm talking, if my point is to not build up, I'm sinning. I'm giving an opportunity to the devil. Because where... What place do my personal desires have in the church where Christ is building us up into himself? Not into images of ourselves, but an image, one image together of himself. Is he increasing and am I decreasing? That's what I need to be asking. Right? Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouth. None! But only, so this is the only thing that should come out of our mouth, such as is good for building up, as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. So my speech can't give grace to those who hear if it's corrupting and ill-timed and isn't building up. It won't give grace. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Don't treat other Christians like they aren't in Christ. You can't talk to each other however we want. That's insane. What what gives us the right to talk to each other, to children of God, like they're ants to be smashed under our feet? Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor, clamor, 
the confusion and noise and conflict that comes from being selfish. Let all of it be put away from you, along with all malice. All of it. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ forgave you. It, that, beloved, that's amazing, because on one side... We're being told that all we need to really be the church Christ has called us to be is some kindness, some gentleness, some forgiveness. And we're also being told that without grace, we won't be able to pull off any of that. 5.1, therefore be imitators of God, not of yourselves as beloved children. Why? Because that's what we are. And walk in love. As Christ loved the church and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. Notice all the as's when you walk back through that text. And I pray you do. Pray through it. Pray through it. Let the Lord have his way. We forgive as we've been forgiven. So I don't, the truth is in Jesus, I don't define what forgiveness looks like. It's I forgive as God has forgiven me, which means no strings attached, no ongoing grudges. I don't say silly things like, well, I'll forgive, but I never forget. What is forgiveness? What's forgiveness? And walk in love, like, like imitate God as his children. Like, like I'm, I am a child of God. You are a child of God in Christ by grace through faith. Let us act like he's our father. That's the family resemblance we bear is that of God. Walk in love, in love. Walk now. You see all the walk in Ephesians? You used to walk driven for your, by yourself and your own desires and your corrupted flesh. Now you walk in love. What kind? The love that God has for you in Christ. The love that Christ proved He had when He offered up His life to God as a fragrant offering and sacrifice for us. We love to serve, not to get... And beloved, none of us is up to this. None of us. That's the law. That's what we're being commanded to do. None of us can produce the righteousness the law requires. So what do we all need right now? We need to look to Christ where the truth is. Be forgiven of our sins, and we will be. And walk in love. And be just be kind. Try it. Right? If, if you're not kind, I mean, try it. Tender-hearted. How would people describe you to somebody that didn't know you if they wanted to give that person a perfect picture of who you are? Right? And if the idea of that kills you, run to Christ where you will be forgiven and are forgiven and live and be free. 